church. Good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? Y'all look great. Welcome, welcome. Glad to be here opening up God's Word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would uh, grab that Bible and open up to Exodus, because Genesis, Exodus, so the very beginning. If you don't have a Bible and you are here with us, we've got some Bibles on the back table back there. You're welcome to grab that. If you don't have one personally, we want you to have that as a gift from us to you. We want you to have a copy of the Scriptures. Um, It is... Um, the most treasured thing that we have. And so this morning, uh, we are going to be jumping into a new series. We're going to be journeying through the book of Exodus, like Zach just mentioned. And just so y'all know, we're going to be spending about the next 11 months in the book of Exodus, walking through Exodus. And so uh, why Exodus? Why are we looking at the book of Exodus and why are we looking at it for that long? Well, uh, as Michael and I have been praying, as the elders and I have been praying, uh, we are a church, and where God has us as a church is uh, we're a people that's sort of on the move. We know that this place here at Bonnie's, where we gather, isn't our forever home. The book of Exodus is a story of the people of God that are on the move, and it's a story of God delivering his people from sin and from bondage and placing them in a brand new place where they can worship and they can remember God's deliverance. They can remember all that God has done in their midst, and so we thought, man, what a great opportunity to walk through these truths of God's rescue of a people and God placing a people in a place uh, for his glory. And so we're going to be journeying through it. Uh, we're really excited about it. This morning, uh, Michael uh, wishes that he could be with us. If you could pray for him, uh, he's preaching at another church uh, up the road in Montgomery. Uh, with all the crazy COVID stuff, we're getting calls from pastors who aren't able to preach because of uh, all that's happening in our world today. So we're trying to uh, help a church out up the road. And Michael's going and opening up God's word with them up in Montgomery. So you can pray for him. It was a really short run, runway. It was kind of like uh, a couple days ago, hey, can you come um, and preach for us? So he, Michael's there opening God's word. I'm here this morning. So um, here we go. This morning, we're going to take an overview. What is Exodus all about? It's going to be an introduction. It's going to say, what, uh, where are we headed? Uh, how does this book begin? And we're going to get uh, into all the way into chapter 2 this morning. It's a long book, so we've got uh, a long way to go, but this is quite an introduction. So where Genesis ends sort of on a high point. So if you are a student of your Bible, you've got Genesis, and Genesis ends, it's the first book of our Bible, it ends on this high point. God's people are doing well, uh, Joseph is there, he's leading, he's ruling, they're getting favor with the, uh, the, the people of Egypt that have invited them in, and they're thriving in the land, and so there's this, there's this sense of hope, and there's this sense of all that God is doing in their midst with the people of God, and then we open up to Exodus, and Exodus begins in this ominous way. So where Genesis ends on a high point, Exodus begins at a low point with God's people. And so here we have the story, the Exodus, of how God has delivered his people, the Israelites, out of this miserable bondage that they encounter and that they experience in Egypt. Hence the title Exodus, which just means a going out. So it's a people that are going out. And it's the story of them leaving and a going out and a departure of the people of God out of bondage and out of slavery. 
Um, but Exodus is, of course, so much more than just that as we journey through this. It's Exodus, you can think about it in this way. It's almost like a picture book for us. We get these vivid, detailed pictures. It's a picture book of how God calls and redeems a people for his own possession. How God sees a people, he calls them, and he rescues them, and he redeems them even in the midst of their sin and says, you're mine. And he gathers to himself a people. It's how they become a distinctive people walking through this world under the guidance of God's holy law that he gives to them through Moses, all for the praise of his name. Exodus is this picture, is this picture book of how God redeems men who are even far from God who are bound in their sin and they have no hope and they don't know where they're going and they don't know what's next and God intervenes and he covenants with them. He's saying, even though you don't know where you're going, even though you're in sin, even though you're in bondage, I'm making a covenant with you and my promise will stand true and last forever. And it's this God that covenants with these people and he says, you will be my people and I will be your God through all of this. It's this beautiful story. And he takes these people and he makes them his own possession and he makes them a people for his own glory. It's a wonderful story. It's a beautiful story. And so the ultimate significant in Exodus doesn't just stop there as a wonderful story. It doesn't just stop as, oh, that was really interesting. So we're not just going to be walking through this thinking, oh man, that was really cool about what God did a long, long time ago. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the apostle Paul tells us really the meaning of this book in full. Now knowing Jesus, now knowing the full story of all the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says this about Exodus and about this book. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. In other words, the story of Exodus points us to the gospel reality that you and I have in Christ. Israel's exodus out of Egypt foreshadows this picture of an infinitely greater deliverance that God is going to accomplish through our risen Jesus Christ who came as our Passover lamb. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying these aren't just cool stories that happened a long time ago, but the ultimate reality and significance of that story is what Jesus has accomplished for you and I and our salvation. Christ sacrificed for us that we may be delivered out of our bondage just like the Israelites were delivered out of their bondage and slavery. That we, through Jesus Christ our Lord, may become a people of God's own possession just like the Israelites became a people for God's own possession. And he calls us to himself and he perseveres and he persists with them and he persists with us even in our disobedience, we see threads of the gospel all through the book of Exodus. It's beautiful. And he is with us and he will walk with us until he makes the Israelites in the Exodus and you and I as God's people 
uh, a people that will display and show the character and glory of God to those around us. Um, Those people in the Exodus were God's chosen people. And we, in the New Testament, are God's chosen people, the church. We see so many beautiful parallels that we're going to be getting into in the days and the weeks ahead. So God's dealing, so I, just at the very beginning, I want to give us um, some framework about what, what are the, some of the things that we're going to see and experience, and what are the things that we're going to learn about how God deals with his people through Exodus and what it shows us, uh, even you and I today, sitting right here. So first thing that we're going to learn, the first thing uh, that we're going to see through the book of Exodus is God's plan for saving people, God's plan of redemption, and it is by grace. Salvation by grace is found in Exodus, and it is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, right? The whole gospel is foreshadowed in Exodus, and it's in just on full display. Salvation from bondage and sin by the grace of God through the shedding of blood into the newness of life. That's found in the Exodus, the Passover. And it is fulfilled in Christ. Secondly, what we're gonna see through journeying through Exodus is we find God's pattern for shaping his people, for shaping his people. That when God brought his people out of this exodus, when he, when he brought them out of bondage, that was just the very beginning. That was sort of uh, the very beginning of all that he wanted to do in and through them. His purpose ultimately was not just that he would save them out of bondage and sort of leave them on their own, was that his purpose was that he would dwell with them, that his presence would be known among them. That he would be a God dwelling with his people in the temple, in the tabernacle. That the creator is known among his people. It's this beautiful truth. In the New Testament, we read that God still dwells with you and I. That God still dwells in a very real way with you and I in his temple. But now, you and I are called the temple. So God says, I dwell in you. You are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we get to walk out this life in this world displaying and reflecting the fact that our God is with us, and he walks with us, and he is for us, and a beautiful reality now through Christ. And finally, something we're going to see in Exodus is we're going to see the most wonderful provision and care of God through a people in suffering. Um, We see a good God have just infinite amounts of care for his people as they walk through the unknowns, as they walk through sin, as they walk even in rebellion, God still and continually pours out his care on them. Seemingly limitless and boundless care And he provides for them in so many ways in the wilderness. He provides for them a way. He provides for them leadership. He provides for them water. He provides for them food. All of their needs, when they seemingly had nothing to cling to in the wilderness, God intervenes and gives to them and provides for them and gives them hope in the midst of the wilderness and gives them purpose even in the midst of their pain. So what does that mean? 
It means that, yes, this is a book of instruction for us where we can learn the character of God, the nature of God, who God is, how he cares for us, how we are saved by grace, how he dwells with us now, and how he cares deeply for us. But this book is also a profound challenge to us. It's a challenge to us that God wants to even take us and not just save us and leave us as static people where we're at, but he wants to save us and rescue us for a purpose, and he wants to take us on a journey that no, it may be difficult, and there may be some unknowns out in front of us, but he is moving in your life in such a way so that the, the glory of God might be known around you. It's not just hey, I saved you, and I'll see you in heaven one day. He's doing things in our life now, just like he was the people of God there in Exodus, on purpose for his glory. And so we're gonna jump into chapter one. I'm gonna skip down all the way to uh, verse eight. I encourage you to, so as we're, as we're preaching through Exodus, I'll just say this up front. Um, Exodus, these are obviously narrative books. This is a narrative book. Uh, Exodus, so it's, it's portraying the story of God's people and God's intervention. And so maybe unlike the epistles where we kind of take every word, if we took every word in Exodus, we would probably be here for seven years. And so we're going to uh, encourage all of you, it is all truth, it is all good, it is all useful for every part of our life and faith. But um, the fact that I'm starting in verse eight, don't send me an email that I skipped over all the genealogy. I encourage you to read that and let God use that. He can use it, he does use it, and he will use it. Uh, but we're gonna try to get a grasp on the narrative of what God's doing here as we journey through it because it's a long book with a lot to say to us. And so um, here in verse eight, chapter one, we read a statement at the very outset that sort of sets the stage and it's kind of this ominous Outlook. It's almost this foreboding beginning, and it introduces this notion of deep and profound concern that juxtaposes what we had just read at the end of Genesis when God's people were thriving, when God's people were abounding, and Joseph was promoted to prime minister over all of Egypt and God's people were being shown favor and they've been given land and Joseph and God's people were doing great and all of a sudden Exodus opens and in the, within the first few verses we read this in verse eight. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Whew. He did not know Joseph. So if you know the story of Genesis, you are immediately confronted with the weight of this. The weight of this statement, because like I said, Genesis ends, the children of Israel are invited to move from Canaan, where the famine had hit so heavily, and they move into the borders of Egypt, and they're given a place in the place of Goshen, and they're settling as a people uh, Joseph is prime minister. He's ruling in Egypt. He's given leadership even amongst this other people. And so as the years pass, this population of Hebrews is growing and they're living in the borders of Egypt. From this, in this land that God had given to them through the Pharaoh. 
And so they enjoyed all the blessings of the Pharaoh. They enjoyed uh, the blessings of having Joseph being promoted to the level of prime minister. Things were looking really, really great for God's people. They were thriving. And we open in Exodus in these dark, unsettling words in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. What's going to happen? Meaning this, the favor and the knowledge of God's people, that's all in the past. There's a new king in town. And this new king did not know Joseph. And this shows us and this signals for us this radical shift in the relationship between these Jewish immigrants and the nationals of Egypt. And this new king, as we go on, verse 9, says, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And so in his eyes, this new king, he's very concerned with all these Hebrews that are kind of populating his, his land. He's like, look at, all these, look at all these Jews in my land. Look at all these Hebrews. There's, there's so many, and they're, they're too mighty for us. And so he goes on in verse 10. He says this, come. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So this new king is looking at this, these Hebrews, these Jews. And he says, we've got to deal shrewdly with them. In other words, he says, um, we've got to be careful because on one hand, we don't want them to leave because all of these Hebrews are basically our labor force that drive our entire economy. So we don't want them to go anywhere because they're cheap slave labor for us, for our entire economy to uh, be bolstered. But at the same time, we don't want them to grow too many and too powerful and too large. Because if they get too large and they get too powerful, if an invading army comes in against us, They'll join in and have an insurrection against us, and they'll eventually all leave because they'll think they'll have a better chance elsewhere. So the Pharaoh's like, we got to deal shrewdly with this situation. He's very concerned. <clears throat> we don't want them gone, but we don't want them strong. So we have to keep them here, but we have to keep them as weak as possible, is what he's getting at. So the Pharaoh institutes a program to that end, very shrewdly. And listen to what the shrewdness involves, verse 11 through 14. Therefore, they, the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The idea here is like, let's put just heavy tasks in front of them. This mostly male labor force so that uh, we work them to the bone. And as we work them, as they grow older, they'll be less likely to live to old age and will essentially uh, diminish their population and their morale by giving them these incredibly heavy burdens that afflict them. And he goes on. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. 
the exact opposite result happened. The very opposite thing that the Pharaoh thought was going to happen. If we give them heavy burdens and we crush them and we are hard taskmasters with them and we uh, will shorten their lifespan, they won't multiply and they won't feel strong and they won't feel powerful. The more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and grew. In God's providence, the very opposite thing happened that they thought was going to happen. <laughs> Verse 12, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service. In mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, what comes next... um, is of enormous significance in even the history of the world in which we live. You see the situation that this king has and that he's trying to control. But before we get there, before we get to all that, I just want to, I just want to say this about this story and about this narrative and about as we get to the life of Moses that um, when we read the story of Moses, what we're encountering in the weeks ahead is arguably one of the most important figures in the Old Testament when it comes to redemptive history. Now, I know that's kind of like who's the very best basketball player of all time. That's like an endless argument that no one could ever win. It's all subjective. But we have right here in this story that one of the most important figures when it comes to us and even our redemptive history. Um, why? Not only because he led people out of bondage and sin and the exodus, which is this watershed event in human history, but also because he was the mediator of the old covenant, right? Moses, just as Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. So we're going to see all of these shadows with Moses and Jesus, Um. And through him, God delivers the law to Israel, and he gives these Ten Commandments. Think about this. No Moses, no escape from bondage, no exodus, no surviving Jew on the face of the earth today, most likely, because without the leadership, and without the exodus and the leadership of Moses, these Jewish slaves would have never been molded into a nation by God. So the story is so significant And they would have never had the law code given to them, God's old covenant, delivered through Moses. In fact, even today, this this story has ramifications and practical outworkings in the way we view even the philosophy of law today in our courtrooms and in the way we handle people and the way that we interact with people and the way we think about justice so the law code came and it, and it, it, it gave the, the people of God this, this model and this expectation of what justice looks like and what human flourishing might look like. And it trickled down into Roman law eventually. And it trickled down into years and years later into British law. And all of this code trickles down even into American law and our systems and our understandings of people and justice and all of these wonderful things. So this This story of God redeeming a people 
is having ripple effects for you and I today based on what God did and how he delivered his people. It's incredible when you just think about it. So you cannot even think about Western civilization without seeing the impact of the exodus and the giving of the law in all facets of life. This man, Moses, who we're going to meet in this book, had enormous significance. In the early chapters that we're looking at right here, reveals to us um, by the extraordinary providence and sovereignty of God, how he gave the world this one, Moses. And it changed the fabric of our world. After, with all the things against him, with all these things that we just read, this ominous beginning, this hardship, this slavery, through all of it, through God's providence, through his care, he gave to us and he, this, this incredible man, Moses. And so now we've got this, this fear of Pharaoh with these, these Hebrews that are escalating and this, this story that's developing and he's furious about all this and he's, he's concerned about all of this and he enacts this new program of shrewdness in order to protect his concern about this growing population of the Hebrews. <clears throat> and his plan is heinous. Um, his plan is to destroy the male-born Hebrew babies to quell this population. Now, we just came off of the Advent season, the birth of Christ, and this plan is not unlike the one that we read about and heard about with Herod enacting a plan to destroy the Christ child that would come uh, that ordered the, the killing of all the baby boys. Um, and so this king <clears throat> issues a decree to the newborn Jewish boys, verse 15 and 17. The, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Seraphim and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. Um, now, this isn't just like government-sanctioned abortion, as horrible as that is. Uh, this is the government, the king, commanding infanticide. The king instructs the midwives, if you see a baby and it is a boy, you are to end that boy's life. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. <clears throat> Verse 17. <clears throat> but, I love that word in the scriptures when you encounter that word. Um, it is full of tremendous hope. Uh, something comes along that thwarts the decree of the most powerful ruler in the world. And it comes from very unlikely people. Um, but the midwives, the midwives thwart the plan of the most powerful ruler in the known world. But the midwives, who no doubt were intimidated and were so afraid 
at this decree that came down on them. Never did they think that they would hear those words, I'm sure. And this powerful Pharaoh, this powerful king, um, gave them this decree. But the midwives feared God. Isn't that beautiful? The midwives feared God. These were God-fearing women. These women had more reverence and fear of offending God in his ways than offending and disobeying the most powerful man in the known world. And they were willing to walk in that. Um, Without that fear of God, or another translation is awe, like their awe of God, they're enraptured with God, the reverence of God, there would be no Moses, there would be no Exodus, and there would be no law. And so what we have here um, is an act of civil disobedience that receives the blessing of God. Now, uh, we could do a whole sermon series on civil disobedience uh, and all the cultural ramifications therein, but we are not because I don't have time to get through all of that. Uh, But what we know in the scriptures, God's word tells us that we are to obey the law of the land and we are to obey the officials put over us unless they command us to do something that God forbids or they forbid us from doing something that God commands. All right, is that fair? In this case, right here, they were commanded to kill these baby boys, which violated the character of God and their conscience. So they disobeyed the decree of the king. It says, and they did not do as the king commanded them, but they let the male children live. Pharaoh gets wind of this. He, he finds out what's happened, and he calls these women up. Can you imagine being invited up to Pharaoh's chambers? He calls these women up, and he says, what are you doing? You've saved all these babies. You haven't done what I've told you. And the midwives respond with a lie. They respond with a lie. A righteous lie, you might say. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. This is getting weird. Thought we're at church. Kids, plug your ears. Don't lie to your parents. It's not a, it's not a license to lie to your parents. And you're thinking, wait a minute. I thought we're supposed to be a people of truth. I thought we're supposed to be a people um, to always tell the truth and not be deceitful and not lie. Isn't that like one of the things that we're taught like from the time we stepped foot in the church? Don't lie, don't lie, don't lie. Yes, we are. But here's the principle. We are always to speak the truth to whom the truth is due. Um, We are always called, uh, when I talk about the law, going back to that, to tell the the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Uh, In the case of justice, yes. But here's, here's the scenario that we're dealing with right here. Um. Or here's a scenario that maybe can help us understand. If the enemy uh, crosses into your borders and they find you and they ask you where all of the rest of your platoon is stationed because they're ready to go mow them down, do you tell them, are you obligated by God and his his character to rat out where all your friends lie in waiting so that the enemy can go take them out? No. Another example Someone comes, breaks the door down of your home. These are, these are, of course, 
a little outrageous, but you know, this is, gets the point across. Bent on harming you and maybe your children, and they find you, are you obligated right then and there to tell them where your children lie hiding in your home somewhere? No, you're not. That's what's happening right here. Um, this was godly deceit, and it receives the full blessing of God. They lie to the king. Verse 19, the midwives say to the Pharaoh, because, so this, this was their lie. This was their excuse. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. So like, why are you doing this? Why are you letting these boys live? They're not like the Egyptian women, for they're very vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. They just, they're like, I don't know what to, like, they, by the time we get there, the baby's already born and they're taken away. They're not like your Egyptian women. We're, they're very different. So they, they just, they tell them something to try to get out of it. Maybe not a great lie, but it's a lie, okay, right? And then we're told the result of the lie that they told to the king of the land. Verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives. God blessed them for their brave disobedience and descent of Pharaoh's program. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Verse 21 and 22, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families, and then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but every daughter you shall outlive. The king is enraged. Um, every male child, you put him to death. Again, he doubles down. And this, right here, this moment, this fabric is the fabric in which Moses is born into. We're gonna just get real quickly into chapter two because I can't say all that and not get to Moses. Um <clears throat> Verse 1, chapter 2, now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And there she saw that he was a fine child, and she hid him for three months. She had her baby, she saw that he was a boy, and she knew the decree, she knew the fate of this boy, so she hid him, or he would be put to death. She hid him for three months. Now, I mean, that's a miracle right there. How do you hide a baby for three months? It's like maybe you can keep a little one quiet when they're like for the first six weeks. But by the time they're three months, people know there's a baby around. Their lungs develop. They're crying. You can't just soothe them. They're going to cry. So the baby cannot be silenced. If you uh, want a full picture of that, please talk to Melissa. We have a thriving children's ministry in the back. If you just want to experience all the noises and beautiful sounds that children make as they're little, please go back there. Uh, and get a very candid uh, picture of that. So the people knew. Verse three, <clears throat> and when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket, which fascinatingly enough, that word basket is the same word uh, for ark, like Noah's ark. She, she made a, an ark out of bulrushes, dabbed it with bitmen and pitch, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds at the riverbank. This mother consigned her baby to the benevolence and providence of God, to his sovereignty, 
to his sovereign hand, knowing that she could not protect him any longer. She could not keep him safe. She had to let him go. She put him into the hands of God, trusting the Lord, knowing my God will save his life. My God will protect him. My God knows best for him. And I'm gonna put him in this little ark. And in this little ark, maybe once again, we'll see life preserved. And she put him in the reeds. She didn't just like send him down the Nile and it was like, boosh, like a white water rafting kind of deal, right? She like kind of, I mean, she's not, a, she's not reckless. This is a horrible moment, but she's not just, she kind of tucked him into the reeds so he didn't just get swept away. And then he sent Moses' sister to keep watch to make sure to see like what was gonna happen, what was gonna go on here. And then in an amazing turn of events here in the story of Exodus, in the fabric of Moses' life, these women came down to bathe in the river and they weren't looking for Hebrew babies to adopt. They were looking to take a bath. But this just wasn't any lady. This was Pharaoh's daughter. Shows up. And in, you can imagine the terror in this mother's heart, the terror in Moses' sister's heart as she sees the one that put this horrible verdict down, the daughter of that man walking down to the river where she will discover this child. And she's coming closer and closer and closer with the Pharaoh's daughter and her maidens. Verse five, chapter two. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while the young woman walked beside her at the river. And she saw the baskets or the ark among the reeds and sent her servant women. And she took, and she took it. She said, what is this? Verse six. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She opens this basket and there's a crying Hebrew baby. The daughter of Pharaoh. Looks down and this baby starts to weep. And then we read this. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Now, a lot of other translations, our ESV that we're reading today uh, says took pity. A lot of other translations say she had compassion on him. Uh, and I like that. This woman takes this crying baby out of a basket in the river and she doesn't say, I better give this to dad to do what dad's going to do. She looks down at this crying child and she has compassion. She has compassion. She was moved in her heart. She had no idea who this was. She had no idea of the Exodus. She had no idea of the Ten Commandments. She had no idea that in her arms she was creating the mediator of the Old Covenant. But there he was. She had compassion. Exodus 2, 7 through 9. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? And the daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter said to Moses' sister, take this child away and nurse him for me and I'll give you your wages. In other words, shall I take this child and go find a nurse? In other words, I'm gonna take it back to mom? And Pharaoh's daughter's like, yeah, do that and I'll pay you to nurse this baby. And mom was like, oh, of course. In God's providence, protecting this child. Verse 10, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. 
she adopted him. And she named him Moses because she said, I have drew him out of the water. That is the backdrop of this story of redemption. That is the backdrop of the story of where we see God forming for himself a people for his own possession to reflect and display his glory, where we see that God will dwell with his people, where we'll see the law come, where we'll see these beautiful pictures of salvation by the shed blood. It all started right here in this backdrop. Shadows and pictures of the gospel that we now have fulfillments of in our risen Lord Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful story of redemption. And what's striking to me here at the very end, that this was how the life of Moses began, but it will be, catch this, Last thing, it will be 80 years from this moment until Moses meets the living God in the burning bush in a Midianite wilderness. 80 years. So many of us think, well, God can't use me. I'm too young, I'm too old. Whatever it is, God, my time is gone. Whatever it is. It was 80 years later that God showed up and did a wonderful thing. In his... So if you're in here and you think, God can't use me, God doesn't know, what he... God's providence is perfect for your life, and he shows up at just the right time. Let's open our hearts and open our ears to the moving of God. He is real, and he is with us. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we read, even in the Old Testament, we see shadows of the glorious good news of the gospel and how they're fulfilled now for us in Christ. Lord, we thank you that even in the most unlikely circumstances and even what seems like the most horrible cultural things that could be going on, you are still moving and you can still show up in profound ways. And so God, I pray for each of us in this room, God, that no matter what we're going through, that the word of God this morning encouraged us that you are knitting together our story in your providential way, that you will care for us, that you will not forget about us, that you will not leave us, you will not forsake us. And God, you've given us great hope that you've adopted us into a family, that we are a people with a purpose, that we're headed somewhere because you are leading and guiding and that you even dwell with us. Lord, we thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, church, I'm gonna just ask you to remain seated. Uh, I just wanna have a time of reflection. Uh, We kind of introduced this book and heard just the beginnings of Moses' story, God's care, his providence, his protection, uh, his hand intersecting his life in the most unlikely of ways. And uh, I want to invite us just for a moment to just meditate on the Lord. Think about the ways that God has orchestrated your life, what you're walking through right now, and thank him for whatever place you're in. And maybe for the first time for some of us, recognize that he is working, that he is moving, 
that he is molding and shaping and guiding you. And he's calling you toward something. He's calling you into something. He's calling you to belonging, even though the circumstances of your life may not feel that way. Even culturally, it may not feel that way, but God is on the move. And we know that to be true. And so uh, the band's gonna play, and I just want y'all to just, uh, just bow your heads and just be in the stillness and the silence and hear that still small voice and recognize and pray to the Lord and ask him to, to show you more of who he is in your life this morning.